know, generally speaking, cyclicals and high-quality growth stocks look quite attractive to us right now. I would think, you know, semiconductors, which are have taken a beating uh, this year, especially the analog semiconductor companies, companies like Texas Instruments or NXPI, stocks that are down 30 or 40 percent, where long-term fundamentals look very, very attractive. The multi-award-winning portfolio manager of T. Rowe Price's Capital Appreciation Fund is on Consuelo Mac Wealthcraft. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. What do we want to own when things are cheap? Is the question driving great investor David Giroux on a daily basis. The fund manager Morningstar calls one of the best in the business and a preeminent investor at the top of his game will answer that question and many more in a moment. But first, some background. Drew is chief investment officer and head of investment strategy for T. Rowe Price Investment Management. His reputation as a great investor has been earned as the portfolio manager of T. Rowe Price's Capital Appreciation Fund, which he has run since 2006. Giroux is a five-time nominee and two-time winner of Morningstar's Manager of the Year Award, the most recent being in 2017 in Morningstar's Allocation and Alternatives category. He is also a 17-time winner of the Lipper Best Fund Award. He became a member of the prestigious Barron's Roundtable in January and recently published a book titled Capital Allocation, which will be the topic of another WealthTrack program. Since inception, Capital Appreciation Fund has more than met its long-term goals of matching the absolute returns of the S&P 500 with substantially less risk. As Morningstar says, he has done it by relying on savvy stock picks to spur the fund's performance. Now, unfortunately, the nearly $50 billion fund has been close to new investors since 2014 due to capacity restraints, but we can still tap into Giroux's expertise beginning right now. It's been a rough year for the markets and capital appreciation, although it's down less than the market in its category. I asked Giroux for his view of the state of the market, its risks and potential rewards. What what I would tell you is that, you know, getting the year the market was very, very rich, valuations were high. Uh, Today, I think for long-term investors, people have a three to five year time horizon. I would say the risk reward in the market today looks quite compelling. Uh, And again, if the market were to fall another 10 or 15% from where we are today, I think it would be an amazing opportunity kind of on par with what we had kind of in the the GFC or even during the the bottoms of the COVID lows in March of uh, 2020. This is the enthusiasm of of an investor who wants to own things when they're cheap. Uh, But as far as the damage that the Fed uh, could potentially do, I mean, we've got a Fed that is uh, tightening steeper and faster than it has since Paul Volcker was in office uh, in the early 80s. So how do you assess the potential damage that we might be seeing uh, in the economy and the markets? Well, I, I, clearly we are likely to have a recession uh, caused by, you know, again, what the Fed is doing to try to stamp out inflation. Again, I think that's actually... in in many respects, fixing the inflation issue will hopefully fix the multiple issue. And again, I don't think I'm not in the the camp that we to get inflation back down to two to three percent kind of range. I don't think we need to keep 
Fed funds at 4.5% or go to 4.5% is stay there forever. I think that is a temporary level. And again, even if you look at the Fed forecast, they kind of have in 2024, 2025, you know, rates coming back down as, again, as we expect, uh, inflation to get back into that kind of 2 to 3% range or what I call the, the new normal that we're going to be dealing with going forward. I think you're a little bit more optimistic about what kind of a recession uh, that we might be in for uh, than a lot of other people are becoming on Wall Street, because Wall Street's becoming quite pessimistic. Yes, it is interesting that Wall Street gets very pessimistic as markets go down, and they're not very pessimistic when uh, markets are high and valuations are high. We kind of we do the opposite. Who knows where the market goes tomorrow, next week, next month? It's not really what I, I focus on. Right. What I am seeing today is, again, if, you know, on a, a one-year, three-year, five-year view, we're seeing some really compelling opportunities, high-quality companies trading very reasonable valuations or cyclical companies that are down 30 or 40 percent. And even if you have a recession, you know, most of those companies, their earnings will only be down 20 percent. So in many cases, a lot of cyclical companies are already pricing in a pretty bad outcome. And again, that creates a pretty attractive reward for those long-term investors. You wake up uh, every morning saying to yourself, you know, what do we want to own when markets are cheap? So what's cheap that you want to own? You know, generally speaking, cyclicals and high-quality kind of growth stocks look quite attractive to us right now. Uh, you know, I would think, you know, semiconductors, which are, have taken a beating uh, this year, uh, especially the analog semiconductor companies, companies like uh, Texas Instruments or NXPI, stocks that are down 30 or 40 percent, where long-term fundamentals look very, very attractive. Earnings will probably be a little bit too high if we have a downturn, maybe even materially too high. But I think if you look at even on a normalized earnings, these stocks are very, very compelling, where the fundamentals look very, very attractive on a multi-year period of time. I, I noticed that um, in the, the second quarter that, uh, that Apple became one of your top 10 holdings. I was interested in that, new to the top 10. So tell us about Apple. Sure. Apple is, is a name that uh, uh, we've owned in the past. Uh, I think at one point, Apple went to over 30. I think at one point, it got the peak of like 35 times forward numbers, maybe 33 times forward numbers. Got a little bit a little expensive. And I think at the depths of the market, when you think about where the market got in June and July, uh, Apple was trade, tr trading you know, about 20 times forward numbers for a really high-quality company where, again, the business mix is shifting to a little bit more towards services, maybe a little bit more stable revenues. And we thought that was a pretty compelling entry point to start thinking about Apple, and it's had a nice recovery off the bottom. How do you feel about the fact that, they're, that they are sitting on such a huge amount of cash? And they've been pretty forward about how they're deploying capital. Uh, and actually, they, you know, again, if you think about where Apple was back in 2018, 2017, 2016, when it was trading kind of low to mid-teens multiples, they were buying back their stock hand over fist and getting great right. returns on that. So they, they have a really good, good track record for capital allocation. Again, they haven't done a lot of M&A. They haven't done a lot of big M&A, whereas a lot of other companies have kind of struggled with big M&A, especially in the technology sector. Now... Given all the dislocations we're having in the market today, maybe we see Apple do an acquisition, uh, possibly, maybe deploy some of that capital. But again, they're, they're, very, they're very focused on return on invested capital there. I think that's what drove all the, the share repurchase. That's what's driven the higher dividends that they've started been paying out the last couple of years. 
And right. we'll see if they can create value in M&A just like they created value in share repurchase. Microsoft uh, is probably might be your largest holding at this point. It, of course, it could change, but Amazon. Um, so those are, you know, very, Alphabet, very traditional growth companies. How do you assess their values today? Well, I think I think Microsoft is is a great example of a high quality company that has very stable, durable cash flows growing at a double-digit clip with a little bit of margin expansion on the right side of change uh, with their great cloud computing uh, platform, you know, trade, you know, has a little bit of cyclicality in the PC cycle, a little bit of, of cyclicality with the ad side of LinkedIn. But again, you know, even if you have a recession, does growth slow from 10% to 5% possibly? But it's not going to fall off a cliff like energy earnings might or a traditional uh, cyclical or, or semiconductor might trade. And yet Microsoft, again, at one point was trading for north of 30 times earnings, now trading you know, more low to mid-teens multiple. That's pretty darn compelling to me right now for a company that, again, very right side of change, strong growth, great management team. We feel really good about that holding. And I've been adding right. to it more recently. And give us your assessment of, of Alphabet uh, as well. Sure, Alpha, I think Alphabet is, is, is quite interesting from a some of the parts story. They were a big beneficiary of COVID. Uh, they actually probably took a little bit of share from, uh, from Facebook. And you know, I think the market is really concerned that we still have some you know, very difficult comparisons and into a slowing economy. But I think the, the, the valuation, X Waymo, X Verily, X the cloud computing business, the, the valuation is becoming really compelling. And again, they don't say anything publicly but there's a lot of more discussions about, you know, actually trying to trim some fat at, at, uh, at Google uh, relative to, you know, they, they put on a lot of, uh, add a lot of employees over the last couple of years. Maybe we slow the pace of that. So mm -hmm. maybe we see a little bit better margins than maybe the market's thinking. But again, we're not talking about 30 times earnings anymore. We're talking about, you know, teens multiples uh, for, for Google or, or uh, Alphabet today. And that's pretty compelling for, again, kind of a, what I'd describe as a utility search-like uh, platform uh, that has, you know, that will over, you know, digital advertising continues to take share, they continue to take share within digital advertising. So I, I will leave the FANG group in, in a moment, but, but give us your assessment of, of Amazon as well. I, I will say Amazon, you know, it's probably, uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, they are massively under earning on the core retail business. If you think about the earnings expectations for this year, Earnings expectations for Amazon basically zero. They're not going to earn any kind of gap profit in 2020, uh, 2022, uh, despite the fact that they have a cloud computing business that has high 20s, low 30s, kind of even margins. Right? They're just they're they're really bleeding money in the core retail and advertising business, and I think that's unsustainable. I think they believe it's unsustainable. They basically put up too many uh, facilities, too many too many warehouses. The market has is not very happy about that, and essentially they've kind of slowed down the pace of of, of new warehouse openings. Uh, and as I think you're going, and maybe COVID costs are coming off a little bit. And as a result of that, I think we're gonna, we're going to be in a better place for margin expansion at the core Amazon retail advertising business than we've seen in the last couple of years. Because it's been very disappointing, but I think kind of the 23, 24, 25 story on margins at Amazon will be a little bit better. At the same time. They're really doing incredibly well in their kind of core cloud computing uh, business, which will continue to grow at a very healthy pace even through a recession.
how are, would you judge uh, an Amazon and an Alphabet on, on how they have uh, invested and how they're handling the huge amounts of cash that they're generating? I think it's really interesting, and maybe we can compare and contrast those two, right? Alphabet uh, you know, started buying back a lot more stock more, more aggressively. Uh, that's, I think that's a really good sign. It mm -hmm. used to be they, they had share count dilution at 2 to 3% per year, if not more. And now you're seeing kind of share count going down 2 to 3%. That really helps drive EPS growth. And, and there's no real need to have the amount of cash that, that Alphabet had. Because right. honestly, they really can't buy very many things right now from an antitrust perspective. So buying back stock, even if you have a you know, net cash on the balance sheet, that's a really good thing. They are going in the very shareholder-friendly direction, which we, we're very pleased with. Amazon, maybe a little bit less so, right? While they have bought back a little bit of stock here and there, it feels like, whether it be in some areas like healthcare, autonomous driving, uh, they seem to want to go into uh, peripheral businesses, I would say, where right. I'm not sure they have a right to win necessarily. Uh, so I would say that's a little bit of a concern for us. But again, I think that, you know, not today, but you're getting closer to the point where you're not really paying very much for the core retail business, the core advertising business, if you look at the value of AWS, again, not today, but 10, 20% lower, you can make an argument that you're kind of getting the core retail franchise, the core advertising business, almost for free. So in the capital appreciation fund, one of the hallmarks of the fund is that you've, you are able to deliver market returns, the S&P 500, it's a long-term goal of yours, but with far less risk. So let's talk about the, how you're cushioning the portfolio from the stock market risk. How are you doing that? Well, it's actually kind of counterintuitive. When the markets are rich in 2007, uh, when the markets are rich coming into 2018, when the markets are rich coming into this year, we're kind of underweight risk assets. That first 10, 15% decline in the market, usually we're, we're really we're benefiting dramatically because we're so underweight uh, risk assets. Mm -hmm. But then counterintuitively, when the market goes lower, you want to kind of shift positioning. And you want to go at the bottom, you want to be more risk on, so you, can, you get more of the upside participation. So we have less downside participation on the first step down. But then when the market it gets really compelling from a valuation perspective, on a long-term perspective, you want to be uh, you know, more fully positioned or more risk on to be able to take advantage of that. And that's what we did in the GFC, what we did in 2011, what we did in 2018, what we did during COVID. And that's, you know, again, there's lots of reasons why we've been able to deliver the results we've been able to deliver, but being able to invest counter-cyclically or counter to, as you, you put it earlier, Wall Street uh, expectations, right. uh, it's been a huge value creator for our, our clients on a long-term basis. So that's within the equity portion of the capital appreciation portfolio, mm -hmm. but you also have a fixed income portion. And I was intrigued by the fact that you have been in investing in bank loans. Mm -hmm. So tell us about what the attractiveness of bank loans is. Well, yeah, this is a perfect example. This is a great year for bank loans. Bank loans are only down one or 2% year to date. They've outperformed the equity market, the treasury market, investment grade market. And so the thing we always like about bank debt was its floating rate in nature. So that means when rates go up, when the Fed raises rates, I get, my clients get a higher yield on those bank debt instruments. So a typical bank uh, instrument would be something like LIBOR plus 350 basis points, right? So when LIBOR is at one, you're getting 4.25. 
When LIBOR goes to four and a half, potentially, you're getting almost 8% kind of yields on that piece of paper. So it's, it's a really nice inflation protection product. And again, back in 18, when, you know, when, when no one was, you know, when, when rates were kind of uh, low and no one was concerned about inflation, you know, we had about 1% of the portfolio in bank debt. Coming into this year, we had over two-thirds of my fixed income portfolio was in bank debt. Wow. Because uh, we, 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 we were, and we had a very, very short duration. So that's really helped the performance of the strategy, and especially the fixed income strategy this year, kind of dramatically outperform because we didn't own any treasuries, we didn't own any investment grade bonds, or very, very few investment grade bonds. We were basically a, we were basically a short duration, high yield portfolio, but mostly a bank loan portfolio. Although that, although that has changed a little bit as the market has changed a little bit over the last six months. What's your view of U.S. treasuries at this point? Historically speaking, we haven't had a big exposure to U.S. Treasuries. We've only bought Treasuries really three times in the course of my career. But this year, when, you know, when we've had this inflation, we've had a lot of concerns about long-term inflation in the U.S., you know, I think Treasuries have become a little more compelling. And we went from zero Treasuries at the beginning of the year, and about 9.5% of the portfolio today is in Treasuries. And we've been adding them, honestly, a little more recently as, uh, as the Treasury yield got more attractive to us. It's not a defensive move. It's basically because uh, treasuries are getting more attractive. We want to make the bet that rates are going to go lower over the next couple of years, not higher. Right. So we've been, we've been adding kind of five-year treasuries, and there's obviously the potential we could go a little longer on that duration as well. Again, if you believe, as I do, the Fed will be successful and lower the rate of inflation to a more normalized 2 to 3%, kind of mid-next year, which is what, 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 we, what we see, and actually what I think what the market expectations are, you know, the Fed will probably start cutting rates in 24, 25. And the long-term, if, if, if inflation is 2 to 3%, you know, a 10-year Treasury, the right yield for that is probably 2.5%. So I, I, would, I would argue that, you know, I think Treasuries can not only give you a nice yield today, an okay, you know, a reasonable yield today, mm -hmm. but I think they have the potential for appreciation as rates come down as well. We, at the end of every wealth truck, we always ask about a, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. And I'm going to remind you of a couple of one investments that you've made in the past on wealth track. Uh, in 2018, you recommended utilities, and they've done incredibly well. What is your view of utilities now, and, and is there still a case to be made for utilities? Well, first of all, I love utilities. I, I, think, I think no one, everybody who has one share in consumer staples, should put all the money you have in consumer staples, put in utilities. Utilities will grow faster, lower volatility, benefit long-term from the, the transition to renewable power. Utilities are a very attractive, six to seven percent EPS growth, two and a half percent dividend yield, low risk way to, uh, if you have a 20 year view, I think you're gonna make a ton of money in utilities on a long-term basis. Huh. Now. Now, and we were 800 base points overweight utilities coming into the year, but, but utilities have done well. Uh, utilities, people went from hating utilities to loving utilities. So today, probably the first time in a, in a number of years, we're actually underweight utilities. So we've, we've basically knocked down, we've gone 800 bips overweight to 100 bips underweight utilities, principally because we want to use those basis points, that exposure to invest in cyclical companies, high quality growth trading at a very reasonable valuation some GARP stocks, some healthcare things that look quite attractive to us. So we've had to kind of reallocate the equity portion of the portfolio to take advantage of what the market's giving us today.
And the other one investment that you made, and this was in 2019, was General Electric. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was very skeptical of that choice then. I am kind of equally so now, but uh, at that time, it was trading at nine dollars. This was this was before the you know one to eight reverse split. Yep. It was about the equivalent of seventy-two dollars or something, and now it's in the sixties. What's your view of General Electric now? You know, we still like G G General Electric. It's still a, a very large position in the portfolio. Yeah, I would say that it's been there's probably no company that has had worse luck since then than than GE. I mean, if you think about what's happened to GE, it's really a function of a couple of things, right? First, COVID, again, we weren't, we weren't talking about COVID back in 19. It really hurt their aerospace business. Uh, the profits went down dramatically. Profits won't get back to kind of the 19 levels of 2025. So their biggest, most profitable business got hurt the most by COVID. Right. You know, no one was expecting that. But I'd also say, you know, they were, they've got supply chain. It's really hurt the healthcare business. They can't get out of semiconductors. And then obviously inflation has, has really hurt the renewables business. So they, you know, they, all the operational improvements they are making have been kind of, at least in the short term, masked by some of those idiosyncratic events that's kind of gone against them. But beneath the surface, cash was better, culture's better, balance sheet's better. And so I think we, feel, we still feel good about, uh, about GE on the you know, next three to five years. And even, again, in the mid-60s, I think it's kind of a, kind of a silly valuation. But this is a high conviction stock still, as far as you're concerned. It is one of your top 10. It's still a large position. You know, we're a very concentrated strategy. We don't have any really small positions. So we, we only mm -hmm. own 40 stocks in the portfolio. So right. GE is still about 3% of our equity portfolio today. But I think, if you, again, we're, we're going to spin off. We're going to spin into three companies, right? The healthcare business can be spun off next year. I think we see easily $30 of value there. The aerospace business, again, on a multi-year basis, uh, you know, significant value there. And then, you know, the renewables business, which is losing a lot of money temporarily because of the supply chain, inflationary issues, and maybe some bad contracts that they wrote, that will bleed forever. And I think, so maybe the renewables and the power business is worth $15 per share. So you, you put all those together, you know, I think there's a very compelling case that the stock can be a $100 stock without any kind of heroic assumptions. So what would your one investment recommendation be today for, again, long-term diversified portfolios? So we're, we're, you know, where you're kind of in your sweet spot looking 10 years out. My favorite idea right now for long-term investors is NXP Semiconductors. Uh, this is a semiconductor uh, company that is uh, analog and some, some digital uh, semiconductor components. But essentially, it's a company that benefits uh, from the wave of EVs that we're going to have in this country and globally over the next 10 years. We, we think EV penetration is going to go to 40 to 50 percent of the worldwide fleet. Uh, right. As a result of that, you know, half their business is tied to auto. The penetration of semiconductors in an EV is materially higher than in a traditional ICE vehicle. They've been growing their revenues per vehicle at a double-digit clip that can probably accelerate over time. So this is a company that probably should be able to grow revenues on a through-the-cycle basis, probably at high single-digit kind of rate, has a little bit of margin expansion, buy back some stock, and then the valuation today is very, very compelling uh, for that kind of algorithm, and again, very, very out of favor. All those things I was talking about when the stock was 240 last year, the market was talking about, the market was excited about, 
No one's talking about that right now. No one's, everyone's talking about what's the next quarter going to be. But for a long-term investor who's looking at the 2030, you know, great management, great end markets, uh, great ESG story. You know, I think it is a, a very attractive name that we are buying hand over fist these days. David Drew, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Wealth Track, And we look forward to talking with you on another Wealth Track about capital allocation, your, your new book, uh, and about that process and why it's so important to successful investing. Thanks. Oh, thank you, Consuelo. At the close of every wealth chart, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week, we are taking a page from David Giroux's playbook. This week's action point is check your stock portfolio for incremental buying opportunities. Giroux believes we are in one of those periods where markets are at their most inefficient as participants narrow their time horizon and lose focus on corporate fundamentals. As a result, he has added to equity names where he has high conviction over the long term. Psychologically, adding to your stock portfolio as markets decline is probably the last thing you want to do. Disciplined buying of hammered high-quality stocks is a hallmark of great investors. Think about where you can emulate them in some small way. Next week, we'll have part two of our great investor interview with David Giroux about the importance of capital allocation, the topic of his recent book. In this week's extra feature, Giroux discusses how he is handling the many demands now being made upon his time, including the Barron's Roundtable. We hope you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, thank you so much for watching. Have a rejuvenating weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.